We've been in a series on uh, stories of Scripture that, that shape our life. We were, we were in France with a wonderful team over the summer, and there, this was kind of the, the focus of our retreat that we had while we were there. And we felt that we needed to, to take a bit of that and to forge it into a series that gives us a bit of a glimpse into the story that God shares throughout Scripture and where we find ourselves in that story. So we're on part six, but it doesn't really matter because it's about Jesus. So if you've missed every single one, hopefully this is kind of the one that kind of puts them all together. Fair enough? Are you so excited? I've had a weird morning. We had an hour extra sleep, and I didn't. I, I I thought I would be in a different, you know, state. And I that's why I'm wearing a hat. I mean, I wear hats a lot, but not on Sunday. It's just because I forgot to shower. That's all. I know some pastors wear hats because it's cool. I mean, and I might do that sometime, but not on Sunday. Sunday, I'm not. Anyway, it's because I forgot to shower. I just I just want to be vulnerable as we got started here. Just forgot to shower. I mean, I showered yesterday, so it's not like I smell or anything, but um. So we were also, first Sunday of the month, we're supposed to have uh, Taco Sunday, and um, we, we were subbing it with pizza because of the, we forgot to con- connect with the taco shop, and the pizza shop called and canceled this morning, even though we put the order through. So sadly, there's no, there's no first of the month um, food after service, but don't forget first Sundays, we usually have food. I don't want to disappoint you. There are some remnants of bagel in the back left, I think. <laughs> a terrible announcement. I'm sorry. I should just start preaching. Um, There's nothing left. Our kids ate it all. Well, sorry. Well, you're only here for the word then. Okay. (laughs) Well, open your Bibles to Psalm 40. We'll get there in a second. But but getting into this this series on the story, we've mentioned that Genesis starts the story of creation, where God himself is the main character. And as the main character, we talked about how story has this powerful effect where there's this dynamic of intention and obstacle. One of the great uh, writers of our day, Aaron Sorkin, talks about intention and obstacle when he talks about a great story in Hollywood. And the reality is is that every great story has this concept where the main character wants something, and there's something in the way of getting that something. And a really good story is all about how bad does he want it and how far is he going to go to get it. And when you see God as this main character of this epic tale throughout all human history, what that story is telling us is that God, first and foremost, wants you and he wants me. And he's willing to go really far to get us. And what he ultimately wants is to restore that obstacle of What we have called sin, that is a Bible word, but we've misconstrued a lot of concepts around sin. Ultimately, sin entered under the realm of trust being broken, where where Adam and Eve, but where man and woman, are there in the garden, compromised, covering themselves in shame. And God's question to them is, where are you? Let me see you. And, and what we've been processing is, what if that question was not one of accusation, like, let me see you, you screwed up, you're naked, show me. Because that's creepy. I mean, you really think about it. Like, if God is shaming them in their nakedness, it's a creepy God. And the reality is, we do have an underlying conviction that we can't really trust God. 
And that when Jesus came, that Jesus is the one we can trust to protect us and to save us from God's wrath. And then we have this dysfunctional Trinitarian understanding of how things work, where we've got this kind of God that we're not completely sure what to do with. We say that he's good all the time, but underneath all that, we go, ultimately, he's this God that has this wrath to pour out on us. And thank God he sent Jesus, because Jesus saves us from the Father's wrath. And then that focus brings us into a realm where we've got this guilt and shame, but we're not actually willing to let the Father see us. And he's on this pursuit to restore trust so that the people that have had guilt, shame, sin, completely expose them, are now able to let themselves be seen, to be restored into that connected, loved, completely whole relationship. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the garden? And so Jesus ultimately comes in, and incarnation is, is kind of one of the, the, the big kind of Bible words we, we use here. I, I started thinking about, does anyone really know what incarnation means? We don't talk about it a whole lot. We talk about reincarnation a whole lot. Like in society, everyone knows what reincarnation is. But if I really would ask you, like, hey, give me a definition of incarnation, you'd be like, well, Right? It's, it's not like an easy word like at the tip of your... Reincarnation, oh, that's easy. That's when you die and you become a dog like in your next life if you were a little bit bad or you become a better person with a bigger house and more money or you really screw up and you become a cow or actually, they're actually above people, I think, right? I'm not... Anyway, I think I'm, I'm actually getting them confused, the different faiths. Anyway, the, I'm not making fun of them. I'm just saying that we're more familiar with the concept of reincarnation than incarnation, would all agree with that? Yeah, I think so. So the reality is this is what incarnation is, a little, little definition. Even if you look this up from a non-religious um, re- faith-based definition, the, de- the definition goes something to the effect of union of divinity with humanity, descent from heaven in human form. That's kind of how the world defines incarnation. So you cannot kind of separate incarnation from this concept of something from the heavenlies coming to earth. So the, the Christian understanding of incarnation is the union of divinity with humanity in Jesus. That's all it is. That's all. But the reality is, is that the incarnation is what defines our faith and makes us distinct and absolutely unique from all the other faiths on earth, and even the Abrahamic religions, Judaism and Islam. They do not believe in even the possibility of incarnation, where God could be man. That is the defining moment and reality of those who follow the way of Jesus. And we'll so get into why that's important, if you're sitting there going like, okay, cool, I think I agree with that, so the heck what? Well, Number one, Jesus answers the question we started with in the garden. Genesis sets up the problem, what it means to be human, who God is, and why we can't be connected to him. And then Jesus comes in, and we have this incarnation story. Gerard Kelly says this, it's the story God himself has taken to come to you and end your alienation. Mission, then, is not what you can do for God, but it's everything that God has already done for you. And we miss this. We still have this concept of mission where, where I'm like, 
It's all for you, God. Have, you, have any, any of you in worship just gone like out of a breakthrough? You're on a missions trip or you're just kind of like worshiping and it's just like, oh, this is amazing stuff. But all we're doing, it's for you, God. I want us to start to catch that. What that tells us is that we actually are giving him something that we've done in our worship. And the story that God is telling is that you don't have to do that. He's already finished everything worth worshiping. So that you don't have to worry about having to give him anything when you come to worship. When we do, when we come to him, and even with the mindset of like, it's all for you, God. I don't do it for myself. I do it for you. The heart is pure. I get that when we do that. But the underlying assumption is that we actually have something from our work that we're bringing to the altar. And the beauty of what Jesus comes in and does is he says that this all has to do with a father that's absolutely far gooder than you could ever imagine. He's done everything, and he gives it freely. You need to do nothing. Everything that you do, that's not your worship as a sacrifice to him because he doesn't need it. Therefore, anytime we get into a mindset that we're giving him anything by our work, we're operating out of some level of deception. It doesn't mean that we don't want to do good things. It just means that nothing of our worship, nothing of our relational caliber with the Father is based on anything that we give him with what we do. Somebody can say amen if there's two people in the house that agree with that. Okay. So Psalm 40 is a psalm of David. And David says, says this, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Blessed is another word for happy in the original. Happy is the one who trusts the Lord. Trust is a big deal. Who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside the false gods. Many, Lord my God, and the wonders you have done and the things you planned for us. None can compare with you were I to speak and to tell of your deeds. So he's just going on and on about the deeds and miracles and power of God. This is David in a previous covenant. He goes, were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to even declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Let me say that again. This is an old covenant where they did sacrifices, and David says, out of worship, he discovers that sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. What the heck is David talking about? All of a sudden, this whole thing, we thought, oh, you don't have to do sin offerings and whatever anymore because of Jesus. David is saying, you've missed the whole point of the law, and you've misunderstood God. And he's basically saying in his worship here, he's discovering that the Father doesn't actually want our burnt offerings and sin offerings. You don't require them. And he said, then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will. My God, your law is within my heart. So if you look at just that, that whole section of, of Psalm 41 through 8, it starts with trust and it ends with this act of obedience. Sacrifices don't do it for the Father. He's not actually into them. Now, did they do them? Yes. Did we have this concept of sacrifice? Yes. But he's trying to teach them about himself to discover his ways. And if you miss what he's trying to teach them in it, you've missed the fact that he's not actually all that interested in the sacrifices. He's interested in the heart. 
And they became obsessed with what they could do in the sacrifice rather than allowing the Father to connect with them. So I desire to do your will, my God, meaning that what I actually desire is to be obedient to you. And if we read this in context, the obedience isn't rule giver. I must obey like a robot. It's I'm obeying because I first and foremost, what? I trust you because you're amazing. So this song that David is singing is about, I trust you. You're amazing. Your works are incredible. There are too many to mention. And as I've encountered you, Father, I realize you're actually not looking for this, this work of sacrifices, burnt offerings and all that. You just want me to trust you and to step out and obey you. And then he says of that man, that's the man with my heart, where he can dream and I say yes. And that's the invitation that we all have in the person of Jesus, is to understand the heart of God. Jesus did not come to start a new covenant that started a new way of understanding God, like God operated in one way here, and now he operates in a new way here. And as if he had a one personality in the Old Testament and a personality in the New Testament. That's completely false. Jesus came to reveal imminently and explicitly in utter defining detail what the Father is like. Why? Because they misunderstood the Father completely. So then, just to jump around a little bit, the book of Hebrews, if, you, if you're into, into I'm just going to talk at a pretty high level in terms of understanding Bible knowledge. If you don't get it, it's totally fine. We'll get to the end. It'll still be okay. So don't get weirded out. Don't lose me. But if you do know the Bible a little bit, you know the book of Hebrews. It's written to the Hebrews. So if you don't understand Judaism, it's hard to understand Hebrews. But, but Hebrews is all about how Jesus fulfills the longing of Israel and the law. So the law, the law is meant to give this longing. And again, David sings of these things in the Psalms. And then we get to the book of John. And John has his own kind of theology that reveals what? So they were desperate about, about leaving. He was desperate with the idea. He's going to leave the world. John's a really old man when he's writing his gospel. And he wants them, um, first and foremost, he wants them to have an understanding of what it meant to be part of this thing called the church. But then he also has this idea that if you will accept the belief that Jesus that the Jesus that walked on the earth was fully human and fully God, that is what makes you a Christian. That's all John was ultimately trying to say. This essential confession of the Christian faith is that Jesus is both God and man and nothing else really matters. Why? Well, so all this early doctrine that they wrestled with in the early church was all about figuring out what it really means that Jesus was God and man, and how that adjusts some things about God. Jesus, as they started these, you know, the smart Bible leaders, they start processing, what the heck did Jesus just do? We have to change some things about how we think about the Father. Yeah. I watched this documentary called The Work a couple weeks ago. Um, it was inspired by this thing called The Primal Path that I'm preparing to do with my boys to take them from adolescence to adulthood. I'm starting early. My oldest is nine. And, and in that documentary, the reason why um, we're supposed to watch it, and I, I watched it with my boys, which might have been a mistake, uh, I paused it 73 times or so to make sure they were, they were, they were tracking with it. The point was, is I watched this, this documentary called The Work. Um, and 
it's all about these, these, these prison guys, guys in prison, that are they're doing this kind of four-day kind of in-the-prison-system kind of retreat of sorts where, where they're going deep into their souls with other men. And it's, it's been so successful, actually at a Folsom prison here in California. Um, it's been so successful that they've started this program where they invite people from outside the prison system to come in and allow the inmates to transform them. I'm not kidding. You should watch it. It's called The Work. Um, and so I'm not going to go through this whole thing, but I, time and again, these guys are sharing for the full, first time often vulnerable experiences of their life, most of the time happening from childhood. And oftentimes they've got some kind of stuff with a father. And, you, and what was so great is, is like you're not seeing them as criminals. You're seeing them, a lot of them are actually the ones that are going to end up ministering, they don't call it that, to the, to the group and to the people from the outside. And they share their stories about, about how they had to learn to trust again because their father treated them this way or their father treated them this way. Um, you know, one of them talking about I was beaten. And, he, you know, this guy shares his stories like the main reason why I ended up doing all these crimes and full of so much hatred is because every time I came, my first memories of life is, is I wanted to come in the house and I, I wanted to do this thing, and my father said, he, came, he had me come over there, and he just wailed on me and said, get out of the house. And it's like all his first memory of life. And he talks about some other things with his dad or whatever else. Um, even this week, we were at Alpha. Uh, Alpha's a discussion with, with uh, friends that may not have any interest in the faith. They may have questions. They may be skeptics or whatever. But uh, we had someone bring um, someone for the first time, and he was, he was sharing kind of aside afterwards, um, just this moment where a parent killed these bunnies that were his first pet for him to see like a punishment like right in front of him. And what the process was to like restore, he didn't use the word trust, but it's ultimately you're like, what was compromised the rest of your life was trust of those who are supposed to be your protectors, authority. It's compromised. And maybe you don't have a story yourself that's that extreme. But the reality is, is that trust is so valuable. And it's, 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 so, it's so volatile. And sometimes, even when we put a lot of work in restoring trust in a relationship or with a father or a parent or with God himself, we still don't realize the extent to which it's still lurking. It's still haunting. It's still providing mindsets and postures to our Father that keep us from ultimate closeness and connection. And what Jesus has come to do is to say, these views, these hurts, these pains from the Father that you, are, that you have, whether intentionally or unintentionally, whether you're aware of it or not, I've come to give you a, a view of him that is unobstructed and beautiful. And I want you to be able to trust him again. And that's the story of all humanity. Now, this concept of Jesus doing this is the revelation of Jesus. The last book in the Bible is called the Revelation. But the, the concept of what is revelation? It's something being revealed. And the revelation of Jesus Christ is this. He came to reveal the Father. 
he did this by being fully God and fully man. There were a bunch of smart people back in the couple centuries ago, well, a century and a half ago. Um, they were called Germans. The Germans were really smart people, super smart. Uh, this guy named Karl Barth, um, he, was, he was part of this kind of German intellectual group, and, and he was a believer that, that started realizing that the German intellectuals actually believed that they were going to be able to explain God. They were seeing the progress we were making intellectually in human history, building upon it, studying history, philosophy, and all these things. And they, they had pretty good reason to believe that they were getting somewhere. And he ultimately said this, you're getting pretty smart, but when you start believing that you have the power to explain what God is, that you can reveal God, you do that, you get Hitler. And this is what he says, our cleverness never allows us to see God clearly. Your cleverness will lead to disaster. Only God can know God as God. We can only know God to the extent that he chooses to reveal himself. I don't know if that's too heady or ethereal, but there's this real need for us to understand everything we know about God is only because God himself has chosen to reveal that about himself. God, if we understand that there is a God, I'm assuming at least most of us in the room are kind of cool with that concept. We are a church after all. But you may be on a, on a wide spectrum of what exactly that means. The reality that we believe in God means that, that there is this divine, one true being, creator God, from our faith. And from that, everything else finds its purpose in being. Now, once you get there, it's not actually that far-fetched to say figuring out him, apart from him pursuing you with that revelation, is kind of impossible. The Bible, then, is this, this historical account of how God has chosen to pursue humanity. The direction is not people trying to get up and figure him out. That is Babel, that is Hitler, that is Nazis. That is the fullest extent of ego and fallen depravity. When the posture becomes humility, when the posture becomes God speak, I'm listening. He's already chosen to reveal himself. And we spend much of our life begging God to speak. And the entire account of the story of God is about, I want to reveal myself to you more than you know. I have revealed myself to you more than you know. And I will reveal more than you know if you will only turn to me and let me see you. That's the heart of revelation. 
So Karl Barth rediscovered this concept of revelation as the foundation of our faith. But the ultimate revelation of God is Jesus. And the whole point of our faith is that this Jesus came to reveal the Father perfectly. And then I mentioned this briefly, the reformers, the, Re the reformation, which is a good thing. But what has happened throughout human history is that we believe that God was this way in one time. And then now he's kind of a little bit different. And the reality is, is that because of Jesus, we see that, no, he was this way the whole time. We can trust him now, just like they could trust him then. David understood this and sang songs about it. But it took Jesus coming to reveal something and to break into a new covenant for the people to start to realize the fullness of what this meant. So when Jesus came, Philippians 2 says, this was actually the first Christian creed. I'm going to read a portion of Philippians 2, and it says this. He did not consider equality with God, speaking of Jesus, something to be grasped. Who being very nature God, did not consider equality something to be used to his own advantage, is another translation. Rather, he made himself nothing. Nothing. He humbled himself to nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Fully God, fully man. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient which is meaning fully trusting this father to put aside his divinity to become a man, trusting the process, even the death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Glory, to me, is a fascinating term. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure to the extent of which we need to hone in, because I feel like I'm getting on a lot of these big phrases today, and I want to land this into something that's tangible. Holiness and glory are two things that I feel that we've hardly scratched the surface as the church, the global church. One of our, one of our core values as a body is the, is the beauty of holiness. I believe as we worship, as we gather around the presence, as we keep the holiness of God as something that we are, are, are continually keeping in awe, not fully understanding, but giving attention to, we're going to become the set-apart people that walk in a realm of holiness that gives impact, influence, and a gathering place that is unlike what the world's ever known. And that's not just for us. That is available to the entire global church. The holiness and the beauty of God's holiness. The realm of his holiness, I think, starts to become unveiled, certainly in the Exodus in the Old Testament, through this concept of glory. Moses in Exodus 33 begs God to do what? Show me your glory. They've broken out of slavery. They've started to tap into freedom. Israel is kind of rejecting this priestly relationship to go to God. And Moses is standing as a priest for the, the people of Israel. And ultimately, what's welling up inside of him is this concept of glory that he knows is there of God, that he doesn't fully understand and he hasn't fully seen. And his heart's cry 
in worship is one thing, and it's for God to show him glory. Exodus 33. And the father's response is, okay, I will allow my goodness to pass before you. Moses asks for glory. The father gives him goodness. Why? The father's glory is defined by the type of goodness that we could never hope to imagine or see. His glory is his goodness. And what he showed Moses is the realm of his glory, I'm going to pass before you, is my goodness, and you will sing and declare of my goodness forever. And Israel's songs then become about this God who's good. In the midst of questions, in the midst of types of persecution and exile and everything else, they sing of this God that is good. And we have this, this, this issue where we've kind of redefined goodness. And we know that he's good, but, but we still kind of think that he's a little bit scary and unreliable. But Jesus then comes to reveal concepts of his glory and I'm going to skip over some of the stuff in the verses I was going to read. If you, if you go back to Hebrews 1, it's all about Jesus coming to reveal the glory. Jesus comes to reveal this glory, and ultimately, at the heart of that, is his goodness. When Jesus comes to reveal the Father, he's coming to reveal how good he is. Because we still don't believe that he's good. We still don't believe that he's for us. We still don't believe that the underwriting thing that everything we're going through is for is so that the goodness of God could be released in the earth through you and I. I believe today that all we need to do, this isn't one of those like, sometimes it's, it's, it should be a feel-good message, but the reason why it's not a feel-good message, I, I get that it's kind of not, is because there are places in our spirit where these seeds almost kind of like they don't fit because we can't wrap our minds around that. Because we still like, yeah, I know he's good, but why is this so hard to receive? It's hard to receive because we've got layers of lies that we've lived in from all of human history that don't want the seed of God's goodness to go deep into our beings. We've got three lies, I think. There's more lies than that, but ultimately there are three lies that I feel like we have to let go of. The lie of pain, the lie of position, and the lie of performance. Ultimately, the lie of pain is this concept that we can't trust him because of our guilt and shame. And so we enter the cycle of pain that is ultimately this place of shame and guilt. And then we, 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 we then get into this, this lie of position, which is all about, like, what are we called into and what measure of purpose do we really have? And, and we, we operate under that lie. Adam then Adam and Eve then, they had to leave their authority of the garden. They had to leave it. They, they, they literally gave up their place of authority on the earth because they entered into the lie about God. Did God really say, and would you be like him? Is he really that good? Can you really trust him? And because of those lies, 
they sacrifice this concept of pain and position. And then you try to put a cover on that by this lie of performance. So if I strive, if I toil, if I work the ground, if I do this, 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 and this, maybe I will get to some kind of position that God will find favor on me and I will be spared or I will be favored of some kind and get what I need or want or survival or whatever it is. So we have this lie of of pain, position, and performance. And ultimately, what Jesus is trying to show us is Adam's failure and the problem of Adam. So if there, I think I have five points up there. Pro, number four is Jesus addresses this problem of Adam, and number five is Adam's failure. I'll kind of put them both together and then try to land. So the problem of Adam is, is, is this, and, and this has been something throughout all of church history. I knew I was going to get in trouble with all this theology. Are you guys doing okay with all this theology? Okay. <sighs> Next week we have Georgian, so he can do theology, but he's, he's also going to be super fun. This is like our, I want us to chew on this for the remainder of, of the year. Take some, take some things that you don't understand. Take some questions. Write them down. You can text me or email me. But chew on this. The revelation of Jesus, we gloss over in the church because we all love Jesus. We still do not understand the depth of what Jesus has done. And we should spend... The, the better part of our life pursuing the depths of what he has accomplished. We give thanks and praise for Jesus on the cross. But the reality is, is when we say, Jesus, thank you for saving me, we, we must put that act of the cross also in the thanks of Jesus. Thank you for living for me. Thank you for showing me how to defeat darkness Thank you for healing me. Thank you for putting me at the right hand of the Father and positioning me to to come back here in the form of Jesus as delegated authority and releasing heaven on earth as a child of God. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And thank you that the cross is the ultimate picture of destroying death, sin, death, and the grave that allows the life that you demonstrated to be unleashed in every single one of us. So this concept of Adam, we're completely fine that because Adam and Eve took a bite of an apple, that throughout the rest of human history, that human beings are depraved, sinful, and fallen. Right? Everyone has done that. We joked in France, Gerard was like, yeah, and the the reformers get excited about that. Like, it's almost like, I can't wait to tell that baby you just birthed that they're like depraved and fallen and sinful. Uh, that's, if, if you don't know anyone like that, I can introduce you to some of my, the friends I grew up with. But they're not that actually mean people. They just love their, their parts of their doctrine. And some of that doctrine is really excited about saying that this is why we're all fallen and depraved. And, and there, there is a bit of truth to one aspect of this. And that is whether you're a Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist, Charismatic, Pentecostal, whatever you would call yourself, or nothing. The reality is, is that no one has problems with saying that because Adam and Eve fell and had a bite of some fruit, that the rest of humanity has been utterly influenced by that act, right? That we inherited some measure of brokenness because of Adam. And even Paul, especially in Romans, is basically saying that that's what happened. But then Paul says, 
this is in Romans 5, that Jesus is also called Adam as a name for Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't come as the problem, but to undo the problem, intention and obstacle, this obstacle of the problem of Adam, Jesus comes by not doing what Adam did, but instead doing what? Obediently trusting the Father to do the Father's will. That's what Jesus came and did. And so finally, he offers obedience and trust to the Father, Jesus does, in the way that Adam could not do. And that is why the curse is ultimately obliterated. Because the new Adam has come, and because Jesus as Adam undoes everything that Adam failed at. That is ultimately what incarnation means. Jesus has reversed the work of humanity through Adam as the new Adam. And he did this by coming as a human being. One of the most offensive things that I always share, I, I taught a bunch of classes um, uh, through Moody Bible Institute, and one of the things I would teach on that would um, always perk the kid, kiddos up was when you, when you talk about how Jesus did ministry. How did Jesus do his ministry, as God or as man? You're saying man because you know the right answer. The answer everyone else gives is God. And why would you say that? Well, because he did miracles. Well, Jesus went around healing the sick, raising the dead, and doing all these miraculous things, right? He did that because he was God. That's how he could do that, right? Well, that's kind of how we always were taught. And we believe in that he's fully man because, uh, well, we know he had to come in as, as a propitiation and a substitute for our sin and atonement to come and die as us and all that stuff, which I'm not saying is wrong, but we miss the whole life of Jesus. The whole life of Jesus is his, is his coming and being a man and ministering as a man. He ministered as a man with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Philippians 2 says. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, humbled himself as a servant, put aside his divinity to minister as a man, so that when he went around and ministered, he could also say to his disciples, you go and do likewise. I'm giving you the same anointing. And they would come back and they say, oh my gosh, even the demons respond and obey to us in your name. And he's like, yes, give thanks to the Lord. And why is this? Why is it that, that when he passes out the baskets of food and they multiply for 5,000, they had 12 left over? What's the emphasis? Every single disciple, all 12 of them, did the miracle that Jesus blessed by their hands. Why? So that they would know that they've got the same power of the Holy Spirit to operate as he did. So he's at his baptism. He goes out into the wilderness God says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And then it says, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness, into the desert place. And the enemy comes and tempts him with the same lies that were in the garden. And ultimately those lies are, did God really say, and are you really with him, and how are these things really operating? Can you fully trust this God and be obedient to him to the point of death on a cross? And Jesus declares his allegiance to the Father, and he declares his authority over the enemy. And when he declares that authority, he is putting back in place the authority that Adam was always supposed to have, the authority that you and I were always supposed to have. And why did he go around healing so many people? To demonstrate the authority 
that mankind was meant to inherit in the garden. It's the absolute privilege that we walk in. So I close with this, and then we're going to pray and worship. Worship team can start to come up if you would. So finally, this is what I, I want us to get. We have the lie of pain, the lie of position, and the lie of performance. We have the lie of pain. Let God see you to cover your shame. We have the lie of position. You have authority to take out every realm of oppression, darkness that you could ever imagine. God's heart for you is freedom and wholeness. We live in tension between the fullness and between the imperfect. We will never get another opportunity throughout all of eternity to live in the realm that we live in now, which is living with the question of how much did Jesus pay for is available to me right now. I want that to be the question that this body asks every day of our life. When we wake up, Jesus, how much of what you paid for is available to me right now? And what issues in my life are confronting that reality that I need to give you today. Because the lie of pain, the lie of performance, and the lie of position ultimately keep us from, one, letting him see us. Two, they beg us to stop striving. And three, we have to remember where we're seated. We stand. take a moment to pray for every single person. You can put your, your hands in front of you, over your heart, however you feel most comfortable. And then I want to take a moment and just pray for those who, who would like others to pray for them. Just where we're at. But first, Father, we, we just declare that this was a lot of jumping around and dancing a bit on your word today. And we just ask Holy Spirit, whatever's not from you, just flush and wherever you want to hone in on our hearts today, would you just target us? Clarify for us. Stand on. As we've done through this whole series, in one accord we say, Father, we let you see us today afresh. We declare our trust even if we don't feel it. Maybe you've been declaring that every week. Maybe you know exactly what it is that's blockading trust with the Father. Maybe you feel like there's nothing else you can do. That's okay. Come Holy Spirit. Touch us in a way that only you can. We trust you. We trust you.
want to be a people, Father, that don't strive, that don't work for performance, don't look over our shoulder to the left or to the right. We don't end our days wondering what did we do to give you today as part of our worship. We, we begin and end our days declaring that you have done everything and we worship you freely with nothing that we could possibly give you but our praise, our adoration, and our response. We thank you that our ultimate invitation, the salvation invitation, is to turn toward you because you've already saved us. May that be the decree of this house, that we don't ask people, have you been saved yet? It's did you know that Jesus saved you? And have you turned to let him love you and position you with him at the right hand of the Father? Let me show you how amazing it is. What an invitation. What a place of promise. Do you really believe that you're seated in heavenly places today? Jesus didn't just come down to show us the Father. He returned to the Father as Adam to sit down beside him as you and I. It's the great exchange. decree as a body today I want us to pray for each other if you want if you want this community to partner with you for sickness or some kind of oppression or some kind of trauma trauma sickness or oppression can you just slip up your hand and say I just love someone to pray for me for that right now really quick trauma sickness oppression raise your hand up really quick see hands good okay Start gathering around those with hands raised. Trauma, sickness, and oppression. Trauma, sickness, and oppression. I don't even need a story of what it is. Just the declaration, I want someone around me. If, if you don't, don't want to pray for someone or you know, there's a big crowd, no need, just receive at your seat where you're at. There's no pressure. I want this to be a picture for us that we are qualified, not a special team. We have ministry teams. Those are amazing and great. We'll make a team available after service as well. We are seated with Jesus, with authority to say the stuff that oppresses, the stuff that lies, it's illegal. And we declare the truth of heaven, that Jesus has paid a price and that he's good and that that Father that he demonstrates is absolutely good and absolutely willing to demonstrate himself for us. If there's something that you can actually test instantly or that you can feel experientially, oftentimes there's nothing that you can do in the moment, that's totally fine. But if there is something you can experientially say, like, hey, I could, I could feel something shift in my spirit if that was a trauma or if it was a, a healing that you could feel something going on, share that with the people around you. And then after worship, if you could come up and just tell me, I just want to have some, some idea of what God's doing in the room. 
and just take one more minute. Just ask them how they're doing. And if there's something specific to, to then hone in on right now, just take a couple more seconds. And if you're not standing next to someone, just declare the goodness of God in this place, in this room, over the people here. Good. Okay. Amen. Amen. All right. Stop praying. Good. Amen. <laughs> it doesn't need to be long. All right. I want to give our attention back to Jesus as we close. So if you need to leave and rush off, it's totally fine. But we're going to give a chance just to worship with a song. I want to take all that we have, all that's in us. What lies do you need to bring to Jesus this morning and say, show me your glory, show me your goodness in the face of this oppression. We invite you to bring that before the Lord and worship with everything you have. In Jesus' name.